0: Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done.
1: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is
0: Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today in the, I guess this will be the final installment of our totally unplanned run of food stuffs and drink stuffs science podcasts. Yeah, we kind of had a, a post New Year's run of, of foodie topics. I think with some exorcism there in the middle. Yeah. Right? <laughs> what did you, did you, you did green tea with Christian? Yes, we did, there was a green tea and butter
2: and butter. And now we're going to get into a little mixology. And 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 we'll even come back to exorcism at one point, believe it or not. No way. Yeah, yeah. It, it comes up. It's important. When you're talking about cocktails, you're in, in, inevitably going to talk about exorcism.
0: Wait, is that what they always meant by holy water? Um, well,
2: wait and, and you shall see. But one of the important things we want to get out at the, the top of this episode is that, yes, in this episode, we are going to talk about mixology. We're going to talk about the history and science and botany of mixed drinks that involve various alcoholic substances.
0: Right. But we do want to make clear that we know we've got some younger listeners out there. And so you shouldn't take this podcast as an encouragement to go out and try all the drinks we're going to be talking about. Right. And we certainly have non-drinkers out there
2: as well. Uh, don't worry, this is not going to be a a, a scandalous, um, out-of-control uh, exploration of cocktails by any means. And on a personal note, I want to add that uh, my wife and, and myself, we are currently doing a dry January. Uh, so we are only doing mocktails at the moment, which is kind of ironic uh, having re- just finished research on this episode.
0: Yeah, well, you wanted to do it, I think, because you read a couple of books this month, right? Yeah, two books uh, in particular
2: that I picked up over the holidays. One is Amy Stewart's The Drunken Botanist, uh The Plants That Create the World's Great Drinks. And this is a really wonderful book, very flippable, Kind of the kind of book you can bring to a bar or a nice dinner and look up the things you're ordering. It takes a... Yeah, A botanist approach to all of the ingredients basically comes down to the fact that just about anything, well, pretty much anything in a drink, except for maybe bacon, if you if you go that route, it's gonna have some sort of a botanical origin. Oh, Where bacon, do these
0: things come from? Bacon has a botanical origin? Well, in a
2: sense, yes, if you follow it back far enough.
0: <laughs> all of our drinks really have a solar origin. Just true, true. You can say that it's all, yeah, a gift of the sun. I really enjoyed this Amy Stewart book. I didn't have a chance, you, you lent it to me yesterday and I didn't have a chance to read the whole thing yet, but I just flipped through it and as you say, it is very flippable. Mm-hmm. You can just drop to any page and there's something interesting on it. It's sort of a mix between a science book and a recipe book and I like yeah. that. Uh, And the other book that you lent me, which I I got through some of, and I really, really enjoyed the writing style of the second guy, is this book by David Wondrich. Yes. Uh, you say his name? Yeah, I
2: believe so. Imbibe. Uh, He has a couple of books out related to mixed drinks. One is entirely about punches. And uh, this one is really focused more in on on the cocktail. And it it has recipes in it as well, uh, but it is more about the history and culture, uh, especially the origins, uh, the very American origins of the cocktail.
0: And along those lines, I believe you had a quote that you wanted to read from David Wondrich's book, right? Yeah, I think this sets the tone uh, fabulously for a lot of what we're going to talk
2: about here and just for discussion of basically what a cocktail is. He writes, Anyone who has spent any time pondering the origins of the cocktail, be it for the months or years it takes to write a book or seconds it takes to internalize a dry martini, will agree that it's a quintessentially American contraption. How could it be anything but? It's quick, direct, and vigorous. It's flashy and a little bit vulgar. It induces an unreflective overconfidence. It's democratic, forcing the finest liquors to rub elbows with ingredients of far more humble stamp. It's profligate with natural resources. Think of the electricity generated to make ice that gets used for 10 seconds and discarded. In short, it rocks. (laughs) But the cocktail is American. It's American in the same way as the hot dog, that is, the Frankfurter, the hamburger, the hamburger steak and the ice cream cone with its rolled good as a nation. We have a knack for taking underperforming elements of other people's cultures, streamlining them, supercharging them, and then letting them rip from nobody to superstar with a trail of sparks and a hell of a noise along the way. That's how the cocktail did it anyway. <laughs> so yeah, that's uh that's from page 209 in his book, uh, it, it's, it's full of just weird historical details, colorful characters, and more than a few classic cocktail recipes. So we'll keep referring back to it, but I, I highly recommend picking it up if you're a, a cocktail
0: fan or an American history fan. It's a great read. Yeah. You mentioned historical characters. Uh, one of the great colorful characters in this book is in the section I was reading. I think he's a central figure in the book is mm-hmm. Jerry Thomas. This oh, yes. Legendary bartender who operated bars all over the place in uh, San Francisco during the gold rush boom and in New York. Who was this crazy flamboyant character, a man of what, what is it called, uh, the sport, sporting fraternity? Yes. <laughs> uh, which I think generally means lay, no good layabouts of yes. the, uh, <laughs> of the 1800s and who loved to celebrate with these extravagant, uh, drinks that he was very good at making and he loved lavish uh, clothes and he loved diamonds and he loved big pieces of art. And there's a great story where somebody interviews him for a newspaper at some point and he's got a couple of pet rats scampering along <laughs> on his shoulders or something.
2: Yeah, he seems to have had a, a wonderful sense of showmanship, mm-hmm. uh, which is, is ultimately such a huge part of of cocktails and cocktail cultures. Like there's the there's this the pure mixology of what's going on mm-hmm. and then there's the, the the flash of creating something, creating an experience and selling it to the customer. And maybe making a few things up, a few flourishes up to uh to, to grease the sale.
0: Yeah, the, the mixed up cocktail, the the product of any real endeavor of mixology is an event. It's not just something to be consumed. It's something to be admired, in many cases to watch the bartender making for you uh it's a process and yeah. and it's kind of a process in the same way that uh i don't know uh going to like one of those teppanyaki steakhouses is right mm-hmm. yeah or yeah. sitting at a sushi bar for instance yeah yeah Yeah, you get to see the uh, the,
2: the magic of the food come together. I mean, in a sense, it's like, you know, like making cocktails at your home or cooking at your home. There's this there's this experience, this this process, you're following instructions. Maybe you're improvising a little bit. You're going through an experience to get this thing. You're richer for the experience.
0: And that plays a part in your enjoyment of it. Well, before we look at the science of some cocktails and the, and the alcohols in them, maybe we should look a little bit at the history of the cocktail. The, what's, what's the social relevance of this tradition of mixing different alcoholic beverages together to produce a newer, better, higher emergent form? Well, one of the core points that Wondrich makes is that the the
2: origins of the cocktail and cocktail culture are largely American mm-hmm. now, certainly it's a culture that we lost and we had to rediscover and reclaim the realm of mixology from the the tyranny of apple teenies and an unimaginable unimaginable tryst with vodka.
0: This is a thing in in the book I noticed i I didn't get to the part mm-hmm. where he explains this, but he makes some snide comments about vodka.
2: Well, uh, I I think his main deal, Wondrich, is that you know he's very interested in the the origins of cocktail culture and this golden age Mm -hmm. of cocktail culture. And vodka really didn't you know make it splash until till after that point. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not to say there aren't some wonderful vodka cocktails out there, but as as we were discussing before the podcast, you said that you personally feel vodka is a little bit workhorse, right?
0: Yeah, it's not. I mean, I I don't know of any of my favorite cocktails that have vodka in them. It just seems like it's something that you mix with something vaguely sugary and it makes a drink that has alcohol in it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe, I don't know. Uh, you, you can see James Bond ordering vodka martinis, but I just look at that and be like, why not just get a real martini? What's wrong with you? <laughs> um, well, another
2: thing that came up when we were preparing for the episode is... Going along with your uh, your point about food culture and a bit the preparation culture and how that enriches the social experience of enjoying the cocktail, I also personally feel experimenting with uh, with uh, uh, mocktails this month as I am that a, a, a concoction without alcohol in it can go down a bit fast. You can be a little bit thirstier for it. Yeah. Whereas my in my own experience, if it has a, a strong spirit in there. It it forces you to take smaller drinks and it sort of uh, draws out the experience of enjoying the beverage.
0: Yeah, like the relaxation brought on by a cocktail might not just be from the drug content, the alcohol content acting upon your brain, but it's also from the process of drinking Mm -hmm. because you're you're forced to slow down and relax and take your time for a moment.
2: Yeah. Now, cocktail culture is also something that some might argue that the Japanese have elevated and perfected, as they've done with other Western properties. Uh, but it, but it all still, but it was all still one of America's first true art forms, uh, at least culinarily speaking. Right. Now to be sure, the American cocktail flo- uh, followed closely on the heels of a tradition of proper punches. <laughs> Uh which <laughs> Wondrich is quick to remind us, so we're we're more complex back in the day.
0: Yeah, you you can think of the punch as being like the the big bowl of stuff that somebody's drinking at a Christmas party in a Christmas Carol. Yeah, that, that party that Scrooge won't go to. They're having some punch, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, and it wasn't just Sprite and fruit juice and some booze. It
2: was it was a more complex. I mean, the Wondrich wrote an entire book about it. Yeah. Uh, he makes a, a distinction between uh, between today's punches and the greater punches he calls them, calls them that were made quote long and strong <laughs> And so this style of mixology reigned from the 1670s to the 1850s, and then temperance in, uh, the temperance movement in Europe put the brakes on punch a bit, uh, as did the busy approach to life in the Americas. So instead of, you know, going through the whole rigmarole of having this giant punch bowl with this, this carefully balanced uh, concoction inside of it, punch by the glass became a thing. And this was sort of a precursor to the cocktail.
0: Yeah, that sort of makes sense. I mean, punch is for parties, as I was right. saying. It's there to serve a lot of people in a limited time frame. Yeah, why would you make make yourself a punch after work?
2: Yeah, yeah. Or you go into a bar. It's just you. Yeah. You know, may, maybe you you don't have that much of a social situation going on. You want a, a, a glass of punch? Why not? Why can it not be provided uh by the glass? After this, you have what Wondrich calls the children of punch. So you have Collins's, daisies, fizzes, sours, cobblers, coolers, the swizzle, uh the the egg drinks, the various egg drinks where you have uh, especially the, the, the white of the egg that's been frothed up. And before the cocktail, you had toddies, slings, juleps. So. Even the just a, trying to figure out what a proper cocktail is, that can be kind of hard to nail down. You'll find various historical tidbits and descriptions that entail cocktail-like concoctions. So, for instance, uh, Dickensian Londoners that drank what were known as pearls. This was hot ale. So, hold on. That's pearl with a U, not yes. like an oysters. Pearl. Yeah, not like an oyster pearl, like P-U-R-L-S. And this would have been hot ale, gin, sugar, eggs, and nutmeg. Hmm. So, very close. Uh, Samuel Pepys recorded the the drinking of a great many things, including pearls, as well as gin and vermouth. So, as as Wondridge points out, he was really close to having invented uh, martinis. Huh.
0: Now, I I do remember in the diaries of Samuel Pepys an episode in which he drinks far too much alcohol and has to run outside and urinate in an alleyway somewhere. <laughs> but I don't remember what he's drinking in this episode. I think it is beer, though. OK, yeah, I, I, I might. I believe he was not opposed to just straight up beer as well. I certainly think of beer as the quintessential uh English drink. Mm hmm. Uh, I should
2: also point out there are various stories about why we even call it a cocktail. Mm -hmm. Uh, One story I ran across is that it had to do it was a horse analogy. So if you have an old older horse and you're going to sell it off, you want to make it appear young and spirited. So you might give it something to perk it up to cock its tail. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, Well, I I mean, I I don't know. I'm I'm not not up on the details of how you would cock the tail. I'm not saying this is something uh, intrusive.
0: Well, no, I, (laughs) I I've heard stories of this. Okay. Well, the the, idea- the stories are like rubbing ginger on its butt. And OK, stuff. well, the, I guess the idea here then is
2: that the cocktail would be the human equivalent of a little ginger on the butt, you know, to to perk you up, to to liven your spirits and uh, and make you a little more presentable for a short period of time. Stuff to blow your mind does not advocate putting ginger on horses. butts. <laughs> no, not at all. So by the, the 19th century standards, a true cocktail had specific ingredients, spirits or wine. Then you'd sweeten it with sugar, dilute it with water, if you needed to, and it and may be thrown a dash of bitters. Uh, bitters are, of course, a medicinal infusion of bitter roots, herbs, spices, what have you.
0: And if you've ever tried to make a cocktail without bitters and wondered what's missing, that's what's missing. Yeah. Bitters, it, I think, are essential.
2: Yeah, as you sort of triangulate the flavor, right? Because you've got to have your, your bitter, you have your sweet. Mm. Um, you want you want to be able to, 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 to find that balance. You don't want it to be just this ultra-sweet or this ultra-bitter uh, concoction. So you can get really high and mighty about uh, the definition of the cocktail. Uh, you can stick to the to a narrow definition, but all you really need is the mixture of an alcohol with some other ingredient, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, a Jack and Coke is a cocktail.
0: Eh, I mean, am I being high and mighty here? I I, I promise I'm not high and mighty.
2: <laughs> that just sounds like really is it? By the my modern diluted standards. I think you can say, yes, it's on the cocktail menu, um, but it's, of course, far from a perfectly balanced Manhattan and old fashioned, etc. cetera. Uh, a punch wasn't a cocktail, but we can certainly go back much further in time and find examples of its basic principles. On that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will look at some, in some cases, very ancient concoctions that You can argue we're cocktails, uh, though you might not want to try and order them at your favorite restaurant this weekend. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
1: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Today's
0: episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
3: Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers
0: So looking at the origins of cocktails, I, I want to throw out an idea that I'm, I don't know, I've been mulling over. Okay. So I'm sort of sympathetic to the idea that cooking has multiple anthropological functions. Of course, there's the, the basic biological role of it in that it makes food safer to eat, mm-hmm. you know, killing foodborne bacteria and stuff right. like that. And it makes food easier to digest. It's externalizing some of the process of digestion. You can get more nutrition out of the food. Mm-hmm. But – it might also, I think, kind of provide a psychological effect in that it sort of denatures or provides psychological distancing effects um, by putting a veneer of artificiality and civilization over the brute animal activity of gorging oneself on calories of plant matter and animal flesh in order to stay alive. It's almost like a a way of putting death out of mind in Uh the process of eating.
2: Okay. Kind of like how we we distance ourselves from the reality of especially meat products. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We like – sometimes people are disturbed to see their meat being cut off of an animal carcass mm-hmm. instead of just arriving in a wrapped container. Uh, some people don't even want to look at raw meat. They might buy pre-cooked meat or something like that. And I think that there's some of the same anthropological uh, desire for distancing from our animal nature that that's operating here. And again, this is, this is just my speculation. I'm not, this is not backed up by any hard science. Um, but, I wonder if some of the same thing could be going on with the idea of mixing alcohols, mm-hmm. uh, the cocktail culture, or even going back to some of these things we're about to talk about, you know, the origins of mixing wine with various ingredients. It is tasty. I'll give it that. So I, but also cooked food is tasty. I wonder if there is also an element that's operating that is putting a veneer of civilization and sophistication Onto the act of ingesting ethanol to dull your senses, right?
2: Or sort of the uh, to, to take a page from nature documentaries, and of course, overdrawn at the memory bank, mm-hmm. the idea of a, of a monkey eating a, a a rotting, fermenting fruit and then falling out of a tree. Yeah, exactly. Like we we don't want yeah. that experience, though. Essentially, how is it that different, right? We've we've taken something that has been transformed by its uh, uh, by its demise. Uh, we've, we've, uh, we've eaten it or we've, uh, we've sipped of it and then it's altered our senses a bit.
0: Yeah. So I'm, I'm certainly not saying that the, uh, you know, the visual art and the, uh, the, the taste and, and smell pleasure of a cocktail is not the primary reason for it. But I, I wonder if it's fulfilling this other role too. If it, it makes us feel just a little more human and a little bit less like an ape rolling around while we're getting in the state of mind that, you know, if, if it goes wrong, could lead to some actual rolling around.
2: <laughs> well, certainly there's there's no shortage of, of culture attached, attached to cocktails, especially when you get into the even the particulars of the glasses and and what sort of glass is suitable for this type of beverage, some of which is grounded in the, the physics or the chemistry of the thing. Uh, but more often than not, it's just pure cultural distinctions. Mm-hmm. This type of glass, coupe glass or a Nick and Nora is more appropriate for this drink. Why? Just because it, it looks nice.
0: Because it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it's always been done. That's what your culture says. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, l- let's go back through that culture. Let us retreat into the clouds of history and see if we can find the origins of the, this uh, process of mixing alcoholic beverages. Well, the the, the true origins are,
2: are Ultimately going to be lost to the, the mist of history because essentially what we're talking about is just at its very basis, combining wines or other alcoholic concoctions right. with herbal ingredients or other ingredients that alters the, 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 the finished beverage. Yeah. Cause distilled liquor is not that old. Right. So making wine with some selection of specialized ingredients. Well, these have been with us for, for ages. So you you might choose to call them Magical potions, or you might call it a medicinal elixir. But let's consider a, a few interesting examples.
0: What do they call it in Game of Thrones? Mould wine. Mould wine. Yes. Yeah. And Everybody course. drinks mould wine. <laughs> and don't forget the milk of the poppy. As oh well, yeah, which we'll we'll kind of come back to
2: in a bit. So uh, these are a few examples. These are not necessarily in order of um, historical um, occurrence, but uh, one of Emperor Claudius's physicians. One uh, Scribonius Largus uh prescribed the following to soothe the stomachache. Sweet wine combined with dissolved black myrtle berries, and pills made up of dates, dill, saffron,
0: nigella seeds, hazelwort, and juniper. Okay, so it sounds like uh wait, hold on, sw- some wine, so like wine, that is a precursor of a vermouth product, and mm-hmm. you're getting some juniper here. So they're working on a martini. You could, Yeah, juniper berries are, are, are the, the key ingredient in gin. So you could make an
2: argument that, yeah, this, this may be a, a precursor to a martini. A very, very certainly, distant yeah, precursor. Almost certainly would not have tasted like a martini. Uh, here's another one. According to Amy Stewart's uh, The Drunken Botanist, uh, an 18th century concoction called for boiling snails with milk, brandy, figs and spices to create, to treat consumption.
0: Mm mm mm. Yeah. Can you imagine you you're already dealing with consumption <laughs> and then somebody who really cares about you comes at you with a cup of this.
2: Yeah. What's in it? Well, uh you know, some brandy, figs, spices, milk. Oh, sounds good. And some boiled snails.
0: Mm mm. mm. That's
2: that's how they get you the final ingredient. Now, if we go back all the way to a uh, 30 BCE, Virgil the of course the poet who right. notably guided uh, Dante into the underworld in uh, the Divine Comedy uh he he wrote of uh, of citron as a remedy against poison huh. so citron being a you know citrus uh, fruit uh the peel was added to wine as a vomit inducing remedy oh good yeah. <laughs> So uh, citron is one of the earliest species of citrus. It's apparent of various citrus species that we we prize today and use in, in concoctions and, you know, in, in all manner of recipes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has a thick peel. It's a sour fruit. It is a, a quote, dinosaur of the citrus world. <laughs> uh, Kin to again to many fru- fruits that we cherish in our cocktails, and more closely related to uh, the Buddha's hand uh, citron. I don't know if you've ever seen this. It's a really beautiful uh, fruit that has this kind of you don't think of a straight up hand, but think of a a, a very uh, eastern depiction of a curly fingered hand, and you have it. It looks very Lovecraftian.
0: I just looked it up. It does. It has uh, it has tentacles coming yeah. out of its head. I have a, I actually have a
2: post about it that I'll link to on the landing page for this episode because it, it photographs beautifully. Just a beautiful, beautiful fruit. Now I can't, I, I can't recommend trying Virgil's uh, recipe here, <laughs> but it is worth uh, noting that in Barbados they originally made citron water in the 18th century and may have used it to flavor vermouth. So there is some connection there to uh, more or less modern drink culture.
0: Alright, so a minute ago we mentioned the juniper berry as one of the ingredients, uh, prescribed for this, this pill combined with sweet wine to soothe an upset stomach in ancient Rome. Uh, but, uh, so juniper actually did, does, as we say, end up being the main ingredient in gin, right? Yeah, and it's a uh, medicinal use goes way back as well. It was used
2: as early as 1266 by Belgian theologian Thomas van Contemporary and he recommended boiling juniper berries in rainwater or wine uh, to treat stomach pain pain now this it's important to note would not have tasted like gin no matter what your what a you know bottom shelf variety of gin you might be thinking of i'm sure that tasted better than a rainwater juniper concoction bad
0: gin is a bad idea
2: yes as i would i would advise anyone who is turned off of gin to you know explore there's some there's some great gins out there uh that uh, that aren't that don't taste of rainwater. Now in the 2nd c- century Greek physician uh, Galen recommended juniper berries to quote cleanse the liver and kidneys and uh, and they evidently thin any thick and viscous juices and for this reason they are mixed in health medicines unquote. So uh, Stuart in her book uh, writes that this suggests a mixture with alcohol which again kind of sounds like gin probably would not have tasted anything like gin. All right, move, moving on from protogen, uh, here's a, an 1850s recipe for a concoction to treat EWAS, which uh, was some sort of bacterial infection that afflicted the skin and the joints. So Kentucky farmer John B. Clark listed uh, the recipe as follows. This was listed in the Drunken Botanist as well. You would need to combine one pint of hog lard, one handful Wait, I, of... I think you said lard. Yes, lard. Yes, hog lard. Yes, straight up hog lard. In the drink. Yes. Okie doke. Again, not that different from the, the bacon related drinks that would briefly become, uh, the fad. We'll, we'll get to that. So, okay. (laughs) You get your pint of hog lard. You got your handful of earthworms. That's what you're going to, you're going to need that handful of tobacco. Oh, good. Four pods of red pepper. Uh huh. A spoonful of black pepper. A race of ginger. And you stew this together and mix with brandy.
0: Well, that sounds dangerous on one <laughs> hand because if you're using tobacco in it, that sounds like you could uh, easily accidentally extract too much nicotine and, and poison yourself, right?
2: Well, this is a good good point as well. And this this will come up again as we discuss uh, the weird uh, connection between alcohol and tobacco there and tobacco-infused alcohol. So you can actually buy one today. But, yeah, that would have been a potential uh, – I don't know, Thread here, or maybe that's how it works maybe you're you're isolating the, uh, uh, the the true power of this folklore remedy,
0: yeah, I mean, I guess when you think about it the the whole nature of, of drinking ethanol based drinks is, uh, you're kind of slightly poisoning yourself.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And as we get into the, some of the so-called nefarious spirits that have been used in cocktails over time, it's worth stressing that alcohol is kind of the nefarious spirit. Right. Uh, very few of the, the substances that get mixed in with it are as potentially dangerous as the thing itself. Uh, finally, I want to m- mention this is a, a little, Far less of a cocktail, but certainly a mixture of of spirits. Uh, if you look back uh, at uh, Homer's Odyssey, you find uh, a mixture that is referred to as kykeon, and this would have been a mixture of beer, wine, and mead that was given by Circe to um, to uh, Odysseus' crew uh, in the Odyssey. So, a mixture of spirits and maybe a little magic uh, in there as well.
0: That doesn't sound like a good combination,
2: right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. It, it either it uh, doled them out enough that she could turn them into pigs, or it had some role in turning them into pigs. Either way, not something you want out of your 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 beverage. Bottom line: don't accept drinks from a witch. Right. Yeah. Never accept a drink from a witch. I think we should all we should all know that by that point. Been fooled too many times. All right. So let's get into these nefarious spirits. Uh, touching uh, t- touching down once again on tobacco. So tobacco liqueur. What's the history here? Well, we don't know. For certain on this, but Amy Stewart points out that people that the for, for the people of Colombia, Venezuela, and Brazil had a long-standing practice of soaking tobacco leaves in honey, and since honey can, of course, be fermented into mead, and such drinks, such mead-type drinks were known in South America, it's possible, but unproven, that some manner of nicotine mead may have emerged. So, nicomede, nicomede, I guess, yeah. So it would have uh, a your your alcohol and nicotine buzz combined into a single experience no need to drink and smoke you just have one concoction that is yeah but let's leave the ambiguous world of con- conjecture and consider actual verified and perfectly legal tobacco liqueurs the best known of these is uh, parec liqueur de tabac so this is a French tobacco liqueur and pretty much the tobacco liqueur.
0: I, I got to say, I'm surprised, too. I would not have expected anybody was actually making tobacco booze. Yeah, or that it was like a, a
2: refined thing and not some sort of weird gimmicky. Right. Somebody's dangerous <laughs> backyard concoction. Right. The the, the the distillers here at the Cambier facility, uh, they claim that it has no nicotine in it, though. And uh, this is apparently quite likely since the high boiling point of nicotine is like 475 degrees
0: Fahrenheit, meaning that it probably doesn't rise through the still during the distillation process. That's interesting. So that makes it seem like uh, given that fact, it's actually safer to have a tobacco-based liquor or liqueur than it would be to do what we were talking about earlier and like soak tobacco leaves in a wine that you're drinking or something where the the essence could come out into the liquid – Whereas in a still, it you're saying it would not evaporate correctly, right? And that's something she points out there is that, especially in this age
2: of mix mixological enthusiasm mm-hmm. and often uh, home uh, bitter making projects, that you, some some might make a cigar bitters, for instance, at their house. But if you don't know what you're doing, uh, you might accidentally create this uh, supercharged nicotine concoction, and you could create a cocktail with an inappropriate dose of nicotine in
0: it. That sounds like a very bad night.
2: <laughs> now, now, some of you are probably wondering, well, what does that actual tobacco liqueur taste like? Well, Stuart describes it as, quote, sweet, aromatic, and decidedly different, and that it, quote, tastes the way sweet, damp, pipe tobacco smells. Huh. So. I,
0: I know that smell, but I can't imagine
2: that taste. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one. If anyone out there has any experience with this one and has a uh, a more detailed explanation or additional thoughts on its uh, particular uh, 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 bouquet, then let us know. OK, so that's nicotine. Right. Uh, but how about uh, how about cocaine? How about uh, uh,
0: cocoa wines and tonics? Moving up the ladder of stimulants. Yeah. <laughs> this. Uh, so
2: so this is uh,
0: another so South when, American well, Hold on. Situation. When do we get to Four loco then? Four loco. What is in Four loco? I'm not familiar with this one. Oh, I just made a Four loco joke and I don't really know. I believe it is a, or at least was, a combined uh, alcoholic beverage and energy drink. Yeah. Oh, wrapped this is the one. one. Yes. I, I think it might not be anymore or something. I don't know. I've never had a Four loco. I'm not advocating it.
2: Okay. Well, I mean, of course, there are other drinks out there that combine alcohol and coffee so or the the much dreaded uh vodka and red bull which uh david Wondrich does not cover in his book but uh really didn't make it into didn't make it in (laughs) yeah it's not refined enough go figure but uh but as far as uh the the history of coca leaves uh the, the the prime ingredient in cocaine and alcohol, uh, this this gets really interesting. So Peruvians made use of uh, the coca plant leaves as early as three thousand BCE. So they would chew the leaves for energy. It provided mild stimulus, and it would also help
0: against altitude sickness. Hmm. Uh, it could be uh, brewed in teas as well. Now, did we mention the uh, the idea that this was employed by the the runners in the kingdom of the Incans? The runners who would. Uh Carry the, uh, the, the not messages across the high altitude roads. That's right. I believe we did. Yeah. Yeah. That would have
2: uh, been an example of of usage there where you just needed a little more boost or a little, a little, uh, better ability to, uh, to really go at it in the, uh, in, in the higher altitudes. They would have turned to the coca leaf. Now, when the Europeans came in, they figured out how to extract the cocaine alkaloid, and it was used as a pain reliever, an antiseptic, digestive, and various other medical uses. In fact, in the U.S., it remains a Schedule II narcotic. That means it has, uh, quote, currently accepted medical use in treatment in the United States or currently accepted medical use with severe restrictions. Always I did worth not keeping know in mind. that.
0: What, what, what use is cocaine today
2: in the medical community? I mean... Uh, well, I mean basically it comes down to some of the properties it was originally used for. Um huh. you know, such as uh you know alleviating pain. If if anyone's ever seen the wonderful I believe a Cinemax show, The Nick, they do a wonderful job of exploring the use of cocaine medically at the time. Uh pre anesthesia, you know, you could you could inject cocaine and uh and, and get the, the desired result for surgery. Huh. Yeah. Wow. But it, it is an interesting reality to To remind oneself that while marijuana is a schedule one narcotic, uh, cocaine is a schedule two. Of course, today, cocaine continues to power around with alcohol and illicit recreational usages, but it also made its way into cocoa leaf wines and tonics. So there was a French Vin Mariani, a, this was a tonic, and it was patented in, patented in 1863 by French chemist Angelo Mariani, and he also offered a cocoa wine called Vin Tonique Mariani, which was a combo of Bordeaux wine and cocoa leaves. Now none of that goes on, at least legally today, but coca flavoring is still used and you can order yourself some de-coconut, cocaineized coca tea right off of Amazon and it's actually pretty good. It's, it's... You've had it? I've, I've had it, yeah. Huh. Yeah, they've, they've, they've leached all of the, the cocaine out of it. So it's a perfectly, perfectly legal, perfectly reasonable, uh, thing to have. I don't know if you
0: should have it before a drug test for employment <laughs> or anything, but, uh, it... Certainly interesting. Well, one thing that occurs to me is if Coca-Cola originally was flavored with Coca, wasn't it? With yeah. some kind of Coca product, uh, I believe it's not anymore, right?
2: <laughs> well, they, they have the whole secret recipe thing, right? Yeah. And,
0: and certainly Coca can be de-cocainized, so. Oh, so it could be de-cocainized. So, so mm-hmm. but you could think just flavor-wise, perhaps, if you're mixing Coca-Cola with some kind of alcoholic beverage, you may be to some very uh, tamed extent simulating this kind of mixture.
2: Right. And there's apparently a liqueur called Agua uh, sold in the U S and European markets. And it's marketed as quote, a premium herbal liqueur made from Bolivian cocoa leaves and an infusion of 36 herbs and botanicals. So in this case, we would be talking, uh, uh, you know, the, the cocaine has been removed from it as well. And you're just getting the flavor profile of the leaf. And of course this, the, the, the excitement of, Ooh,
0: it's uh, it's, it's cocaine liqueur. Well, yeah, there you go. I mean, as we talked about, it's not just the taste. It there's an event going on. Right, it's the showmanship.
2: Now, uh from there let's move on to another schedule to narcotic with a similar timeline of traditional <laughs> use, medicinal use, uh refinement and then outright abuse. We're talking of course about opium. Oh, okay. So o- opium cocktails, huh? Yeah. Uh well, it, you know, this is this is something I didn't realize. I guess I knew this, but I never really put one and two together, but the seeds of the opium plant, poppy seeds, they're they're sold legally uh since they're used in baked goods. Right. I I remember the old Seinfeld bit about Elaine having poppy seed muffins and then flunking a drug test. But I somehow didn't put put it together that it was actually the same plant. I kind of without thinking about it assumed that it was just, you know, something that's closely related to it and would trigger a you know a false positive.
0: Now, I imagine this does not mean that we have to worry about eating poppy seed muffins because they're gonna have opioid effects on us. No, no, yeah, n- not at all.
2: Continue to eat your, 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 your poppy seed muffins. Now, Stuart uh, points out that the earliest possible description of an opium infused cocktail of sorts is, again, Homer's Odyssey, uh, the elixir uh, Nephinthi that Helen of Troy drank to alleviate her sorrows. It was mixed, quote, with an herb that banishes all care, sorrow and ill humor. And this, of course, may have referred to opium. Or if you're a fan of uh, Game of Thrones, I think this milk might be the poppy. the poppy. Yeah, there you go. Now, of course, the, the more direct comparison there would be, if we go to Victorian times, uh, laudanum tonic which was opium steeped in alcohol. The alkaloids in opium are far more uh, soluble in alcohol rather than in
0: water. There is. So I just recently read the novel True Grit. Oh, yeah. By Charles Portis. Uh And there is. A, so I, I'd seen the movie before, but especially in the novel, there is a scene in which the main character, who is a girl who is very level headed, And very all business, like she Mm -hmm. she she sort of uh, messes things up in a scene because she has been given laudanum to treat a cold. (laughs) (laughs) It was it was one of these
2: things that was used to treat just about everything. And that's the thing about opium is that whatever ails you. At least in the short term, a little bit of opium will probably make it better. Uh it's the the it's more the long term that's the
0: problem. Not make it better, but make
2: you not care. Right. Uh as far as actual cocktails go, this is kind of interesting. Uh King George V liked to consume a mixture of brandy and laudum to alleviate his gout. So there you go.
0: Or again, country. not alleviate his gout, but alleviate his mind.
2: Yes, alleviate his his experience of the gout, or his relationship to his experience of the gout. Right. Um. And uh. And of course, Bayer, uh, the drug company, uh, sold an opium syrup in uh, 1895 under the name heroin, which oh. was, you know, of course often it was often marketed at kids for kids to help with your your cough or what whatever ails you. I've seen those ads. Yeah. Y'all out there you should look up these ads. Yeah the 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 yeah the old uh, uh printed ads for it it's it's yeah. phenomenal. And again if you're a fan of uh of all of this you want you want sort of a fictional treatment of it, uh Steven Soderbergh's The Nick also explores uh the early days of heroin uh rather nicely. All right, well what else do
0: we do we have here on the the drink menu, if you will. Well, I was just thinking about uh, as long as we're going into strange and perhaps illicit ingredients, maybe less illicit than opium and cocaine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but do you remember the bacon craze of the late 2000s, early 2010s? Oh, yes. How could I not? And of course... Coming out of that craze, there were lots of bacon cocktails, of course, you know, uh, and not to say that that was the first time there was ever such a thing as like bacon infused alcohol. But it became very popular then. And during this time, it was it was like when everybody thought it was hilarious to have an I heart bacon bumper sticker Mm T-shirt and have bacon parties and to have bacon on all your food to make like bacon utensils to eat your food with. Uh, not to disparage bacon itself, but I, I do think it's funny how all of us at the time for some reason didn't seem to realize that, uh, that the, this was not just a spontaneous outpouring of ironic internet love, mm-hmm. but to some extent a result of market forces in the meat markets and a manipulation of public opinion by the pork industry. I was reading an article about that not too long ago uh like was it really just a coincidence that you knew a guy in college who started a hilarious bacon-based garments blog right around the same time that Wendy's introduced the Baconator <laughs>
2: oh that that's perfect and it it again it 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 fits perfectly in the culture of cocktails because of that that marketing angle and that's often a hidden marketing angle like it reminds me of the the origins of the Moscow mule which of course is, a, is 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 a nice beverage it has vodka ginger beer what some lime it's pretty in that copper cup yeah that copper cup it looks beautiful and well where did uh, it come from that's the thing you might think oh well this it's it's called a Moscow mule must have been this must have been like a work working man's drink
0: in right. moscow yeah, invented by the great bartender ivan <laughs> mulevich <laughs> no it, you you might think it might be something Cool like that. But
2: as it turns out, it just goes back to a vodka distributor who knew somebody, I think it was a girlfriend, who had all these copper mugs that that she needed to sell. So just put one and two together, and the Moscow meal was born. It was delicious, but the whole story, the fictional creation story behind it just uh, had no basis, in fact. That is incredibly deflating. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, you, you drink half of one, and then you feel better about it.
0: Well, anyway, you definitely remember though how this did happen or it was around 2010, yeah. I think that this was really peaking that there was, uh, you know, and a little bit after the years after that where suddenly these recipes for bacon infused bourbon and stuff mm-hmm. like that were just taking over the menus everywhere. And everybody thought it was great to give somebody bacon. Old-fashioned syrup or something like that yeah. for Christmas. And
2: I think I still see drinks of this nature on the menu every now and then. Sometimes it's like a bacon, like the, um, uh, the, the glass is room, not in salt, but some sort of like bacon-based. Not, not straight up bacon bits, but some, the, the fancier version of bacon bits.
0: I think uh, the barbecue place here in town, Fox Brothers Barbecue mm-hmm. in Atlanta, they have a Bloody Mary that's got a bunch of bacon in it. <laughs> As if Bloody Mary's were not already pretty salty. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I can't, I can't match anything that
2: is quite as meat centric as a bacon cocktail, but uh carnivorous plants have occasionally made their way into cocktails so you have a, a plant by the name of a, a, a we we call sundew and oh yeah this, well, we talked about the sundew yeah. in
0: our uh, episode on carnivorous plants
2: yeah so you might remember it it catches insects with the sticky nectar and digests them with its enzymes and it was once popular in a cordial known as rosalio and uh today, Rosalio entails uh, various liqueurs made from fruits and spices steeped in alcohol. But sundew was once a prime ingredient, and you were advised to pick the dead insects out of the fruit first. No way. Yeah.
0: No way. You're now, making that up. No, I'm not making it up. The dead insects in your drink. No, no. You would take it out before you made the drink. Oh, I see. Yeah. So that, you'd, you'd strain it and then make your cocktail. Right.
2: Yeah. That being said, I don't know that it, that it would be that bad if there were bugs in the drink.
0: Speaking of dead things in your drink and meaty flesh in your drink, I'm going to converge these two. Okay. Uh, these two lines of inquiry into a single cocktail, which is, you may have heard about this, you may not have, but in the town of Dawson city, in the, the Boreal yonder of the Yukon territory, way up there, there is a hotel bar. Uh, with an infamous local tradition of bibulation known as the sour toe cocktail. Have you heard of this, Robert?
2: Uh, I don't think I had. And you know, I'm already, I'm, at this point, I'm already a little bit afraid because I'm, I'm, I'm picturing Yukon territory. I'm picturing very rugged individuals here.
0: Uh huh. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of miners, hunters. Uh, barge operators, stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So you're probably wondering, sour toe cocktail. Okay, does it really contain a toe? (laughs) And the answer is yes. What? There's a real toe in it, a human toe for that matter. It is a dark, shriveled, mummified piece of toe jerky, Uh. and it goes in your drink for $5. Actually that's that was the price in 2013 last time I read a newspaper article <laughs> about it so the the price may have been hiked up since then who knows Wait. but Wait, was this an old thing or is this a current thing? This is a current thing. You can do this now. Oh,
2: yeah, OK. Yeah, yeah. So I thought this was like an old, uh uh you know, frontier beverage. No, w- no, no. I was li- willing to give them a little more license. Desperate times, uh wilderness uh, madness setting in. Maybe you would throw a toe into a, a beverage for whatever
0: reason. No, this is less like the frontier wine with a pound of pork lard and more like the ironic hipster bacon cocktail oh. now, because this started in the 1970s. So. So you have to pay a $5 toe tax to have this toe added to whatever alcohol you want, presumably whether it's four fingers of Yukon Jack whiskey or a cranberry appletini or a glass of champagne, as you will see. And uh. the, the toe goes in your glass of booze and you drink the booze and then the toe lives on. Uh, so, of course, I was wondering, where did this toe come from? Well, Atlas Obscura has an excellent, very short little history of the sour toe that you can look up. But the uh, basic story goes like this. In 1973, a river barge pilot named Captain Dick Stevenson, he's cleaning out a cabin when he came across an amputated human toe in a jar of alcohol. Which is an appropriate place to keep it, to preserve it, I guess. Right. So supposedly the toe had belonged to a miner named Louis Lichen, whose toe became frostbitten sometime in the 1920s up in the Yukon. And he had to get it amputated and decided to preserve it in this jar of alcohol. Okay. So after Stevenson found the toe in the jar in 1973 – He got this amazing idea to head down to the local saloon and start dropping it into people's drinks. And those who could bear to drink the booze with the toe knocking around in the glass became the original members of the Sour Toe Cocktail Club uh which now more than 40 years later has more than 50,000 members. Oh. So if you go up to the Yukon Territory and you go to this bar and you order the toe, you, you get a drink, pay the toe tax and get the toe in your drink and you drink it, they will give you a certificate of membership that you are now in the Sour Toe Club. Uh, it's sort of local attraction. If you happen to end up in Dawson City, there you go. <laughs> uh, but I know what you're thinking. Has anyone ever swallowed the toe? Oh, no. Several times, more than once. So the first time was supposedly in July 1980, when a miner named Gary Younger had been working on his 13th glass of, quote, sour toe champagne. 13. (laughs) According to the Sour Toe Cocktail Club account, this guy's chair tipped over backwards and he accidentally swallowed the toe. Now, I'm not sure if I buy this story because how do you accidentally swallow something as big as a toe from a champagne glass? I don't know, but Yeah, cuz oh, he's presumably
2: oh. drinking it out of a you know, the, the
0: traditional champagne flute, right? Yeah. So Or I don't know, maybe in the Yukon you get your champagne in a tin cup, I don't know. <laughs> of
2: course, 13 glasses in, who knows what
0: was going on? Right? Probably yeah, probably not in total command of his faculties. So, uh this wasn't the only time somebody swallowed the toe. Toes keep disappearing, so new ones have to be supplied. Oh. And uh so over the years, years, a few more toes were donated by people who had to have amputations due to frostbite, diabetes, and a so-called, quote, inoperable corn. Oh. And, this
2: drink keeps getting less and less appetizing. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> um, and one donation was apparently an anonymous donation that was later stolen from the bar. And uh, in probably the most famous toe origin story, one arrived at the bar in a jar of alcohol with a note that said, quote, don't wear open toe sandals while mowing the lawn. Oh.
2: Yeah. Well, it's one way to live for your toe to live on, right? After it's, it's left your body.
0: Yeah. Uh, but so more recently, the Toronto star reports that in 2013, a man known only as quote, Josh from New Orleans, Paid the toe tax to have the toe deposited in his glass of whiskey, and at the time, there was a $500 fee for accidentally swallowing the toe, and Josh from New Orleans just popped the toe in his mouth, and down it went. And he immediately paid the $500 fee in cash and walked out of the bar.
2: Oh, man.
0: And... (laughs) Last, last tidbit about this. Apparently when you order the toe, the bartender recites a magical incantation to steal you for your journey of death and alcohol. And it goes, you can drink it fast. You can drink it slow, but your lips must touch the toe. Oh. I can see this is really getting to you, Robert. Do you have a mummified toe thing? I don't know.
2: It just seems it, well, I mean, it seems rather unnecessary. <laughs> Uh, but it, it's just not particularly appetizing, I guess. I don't know, I'm just imagining this shriveled, mummified toe just knocking against your lips as you're trying to down it. Kind of like a, like a, like a, like a, just a, any kind of a garnish and a drink that you're yeah. not ready to consume, except it's the, it's the worst possible maraschino cherry.
0: I have no evidence that they actually did this, but my idea is they should use it in place of an ice cube. So they should freeze it so it's always cold, Mm -hmm. and then when it gets plopped into your glass, oh god! I just assumed it was frozen. I would, I would hope it would be frozen. I don't know. I've seen uh, pictures of it, and it looks like it's room temperature, but it's it's hard to tell. It's well, it's like stored in salt. I think I've seen pictures of it in a jar of salt, I guess, to keep it desiccated and mummified. Huh. I would love to to see or hear anyone. uh describe how it
2: affects the flavor profile if it does at all it could just be pure psychology of the thing Uh, which is kind of ironic because ultimately like which is worse for your body swallowing
0: one dead human toe or drinking
2: 13 glasses of champagne in a row
0: i would argue that the champagne is actually worse for you Probably, probably probably so i mean i guess it depends on what's in the toe
2: all right, we have just I I certainly cannot top that <laughs> at all. Uh we have just a, a few more nefarious spirits to to mention. Uh, one comes from uh cubeb, this uh from uh Piper cubeba, a member of the pepper family, it produces a fruit that when dried resembles black pepper. Hmm. It has a pungent, biting flavor uh that comes from high levels of uh, uh limonene, which is a flavor found in citrus and herbs, and you'll find it as an ingredient in various gins these days as well. But it has a medicinal and even magical history. The the Victorians had uh cu- cubeb cigarettes that were supposed to help you with your asthma. Oh, okay. Yeah. And most exciting of all, 17th century Italian priest and exorcist Ludovico Maria Sinistari employed a brandy tonic flavored with cubeb, cardamom, nutmeg, birth warts, aloe, and various other roots and spices. So if you're looking to banish demons with your cocktail... <laughs> Take note. All right. Another interesting concoction comes from, uh, and this is another example from the drunken botanist, is uh, uh, Damiana, which is from uh, the, the plant uh, Turnera diffusa. So this is a Mexican shrub. Produces yellow flowers and small fruits, and it's long been reputed to have uh, aphrodisiac uh, properties. Okay, so nineteenth century physicians prescribed it to female patients to promote orgasm, and a two thousand nine study saw that it quote sexually exhausted male rats. What does that mean? It just they just kept it made them so eager to uh, perform that it exhausted them that's intense yeah so it, it seemed to have aphrodisiac effects on the rodent in 1908 the feds confiscated a shipment of so-called uh, damiana gin and found that it contained strychnine oh no yeah so and, and this seems to be more a matter of like just illicit just a, a, a poorly made and poisonous substance that was a that someone was trying to sell but uh there have been no human studies that that I'm aware of or that Stuart was aware of uh, regarding its, its human use. Uh, but uh, it's a legal food additive. You can even find a Mexican herbal liqueur called Damiana, and uh, it's sold in like a, a fertility goddess kind of bottle. So if anyone out there has tried that one, we would love to hear from you as well. Now, finally, uh, before we take a break, uh, I want to mention real quick cannabis cocktails. To move back to a, this, a schedule one narcotic. Well, of course, somebody has made that. I'm oh, sure. yeah.
0: But, but is there like, is there a, I don't know what you call it, a, a legitimately produced version somewhere out there? Well, unsurprisingly,
2: there are a few cannabis liqueurs on the market, but the major example of these tend to be, seem to be flavor only. So they've captured mm-hmm. the flavor profile of the cannabis, but, but none of the actual THC. Part of this probably is that in, in terms of making a THC laden cocktail, it's super easy to to do. Uh so all you have to do is make a, a simple syrup. From cannabis, a cannabis simple syrup. Heat activates the THC, kind of in the same way that people use THC butter to make brownies. Really, this is the kind of thing you you can find recipes for wherever you find your marijuana-related recipes. Uh, and the syrup enables you to create a whole host of of drinks. Uh, for instance, I found a recipe for a Malibu Malibu Mule, which is. <laughs> I think essentially, you know, a, a Moscow mule except using the syrup. Huh. And you'll, and also specialty shops, uh, especially in California and Colorado, uh, they often sell THC lemonades or juices. So there you go. If you, if you desire that and it's a, a legally permitted avenue for you, then, uh, the means are out there.
0: I wonder what it's like to work at one of the companies that produces these products. I don't know. You, you mean just in like THC laden products or just yeah. the,
2: i i i don 't know I wonder if that you reach a point where you feel like you've you've you 've reached peak creativity for <laughs> for marijuana based food products like at what point do you realize oh I just I just created a recipe for THC lasagna and now I feel a little hollow inside.
0: Well, I mean, I wonder, so if at some point, uh, cannabis becomes widely legal mm-hmm. and, or just regulated in the same way that tobacco products are now or mm-hmm. something like that, eventually does the appeal of this kind of stuff go away? Is this basically all just like novelty celebration and kind areas of like the where, bacon? Yeah. Where this is recently legalized. And that you wouldn't have maybe much more in the realm of cannabis inspired drinks, uh, you know, a hundred years down the road than you have now this one tobacco liqueur made by, what was it, some company in France?
2: Yeah. Well, it it, it comes down to the the fact, right? That, uh, if something is illegal, if it's prohibited, that just makes it all the more alluring. And sometimes you find yourself, uh, uh, craving a particular substance. Purely because it is forbidden, like it just enhances its mythology.
0: Well, speaking of the forbidden, I thought that we could not do an episode about uh, these the strange scientific avenues in drink making, mixology, cocktails and liquor without taking a look at the Green Fairy. Uh, so yes. we should take a break. And when we come back, we will talk about absinthe.
1: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
3: Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers
0: so uh, absinthe you, you've had you've had absinthe before yeah, yeah. I, uh, recently had the absinthe service at a local restaurant here in town in Atlanta, the, uh, the Kimball House. Oh, ah, yes. Fabulous restaurant. It is absolutely wonderful. If you're, if you're around Atlanta or especially in the Decatur area, Kimball House is amazing, but they have a, a sort of old timey bar that celebrates mm-hmm. the traditions where they will do an absinthe service where they will, uh, they serve it up in the traditional way, which we can describe in a minute, I guess. But uh, I, I would say maybe more than any other liquor. Absinthe is a drink that is totally surrounded in myth. I I remember when I was in college, I was once at a party where some guys were talking about a time a friend of theirs who'd been in the military had brought a bottle of absinthe back from overseas. And this was at a time when absinthe was still banned in the United States. Mm -hmm. And they claimed that when they drank this this green liquor – They entered a state of green hallucinations. I remember one of them mentioning swimming through green tunnels. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I don't know if I believe that. But in the widespread version of this story, uh, you just substitute a person for a place. And you can read about this everywhere. Absinthe allows one to visit Her Majesty the Green Fairy. So is there anything to this, to this idea that absinthe is more than just another alcoholic beverage, that it has these advanced drug-like properties causing hallucinations or or these also uh, very common negative reported qualities like uh, uh, causing seizures or convulsions or uh, all this other stuff?
2: Yeah, it re- it really it really had that reputation for the longest until it was it was finally legal legalized again in the US.
0: Yeah, and so th- this uh the this mythology is very much a part of what absinthe's profile and character is, but uh we should take a look at the the science behind it. So so what is absinthe? Well, absinthe is a distilled liquor, usually a very strong one, mm-hmm. made by combining alcohol with wormwood, and that's a type of plant. Uh, green anise, fennel, like Florence fennel, and other herbs and flowers like hyssop and lemon balm. And the exact origins of absinthe as we know it now are unclear. By most accounts, it was invented sometime in the late 1700s, probably 1790s. And the distiller Pernod produced its first commercial absinthe in 1805, which is when I think we should consider the birth of the absinthe era. But... uh. Let's take a look at those ingredients. So Wormwood, that is an interesting name. Yes, it brings to mind uh, the Book of Revelation, right? And it makes me think.
2: Doesn't C.S. Lewis
0: have a novel that has a Wormwood character? Oh, yeah,
2: and then the screw Tape Letters. Yeah, I believe yeah, yeah. he's writing to Wormwood, a, a, a lower – uh, subordinate to a demon and advising him on yeah. corrupting of a mortal
0: soul. Yeah. Right, so wormwood's a good name for a for a demon, I would say. Yeah,
2: it al- it already implies uh, some sort of illicit magical quality.
0: But wormwood is just a plant. It's the uh, the Artemisia absinthium, and uh, it's the famed central ingredient in absinthe, uh, and the one that would be later singled out in the supposed case against absinthe, as more poison or more drug than than liquor.
2: Now, it's worth noting that uh, vermouth is derived, the word vermouth is revived from vermouth, the, uh, the German word for wormwood. Huh. And the original vermouths uh, would have contained this in some quantity. And going back to the ingredients that you mentioned uh, earlier, the taste of absinthe, has far more to do with the anise in it as opposed to the wormwood itself.
0: Yeah. I've heard that, uh, wormwood itself has a more menthol-like taste mm-hmm. and scent. Um,
2: yeah. Yeah. And so it's basically covered up for the most part by this, uh, this licorice taste. Now the ancient Egyptians used wormwood in wines and spirits. The, uh, the Ebers Papyrus from around 1500 BCE, and this might have been a copy of an earlier work, uh, recommends wormwood spirits to treat roundworm infections and digestive problems. Chinese medicinal wines of the same era also featured wormwood, uh, and we know this from uh, chemical analysis of drinking vessels that archaeologists have uh, uncovered. And it's also worth pointing out, you're talking about the timeline of absinthe and the golden age of absinthe. Uh, Wondrich points out that absinthe was sold in New Orleans by 1837 and New York by 1843, but it took a while to make its way into a true cocktail. It was something you merely dashed in a cocktail, uh, kind of like how if anyone's had a, you know, a proper Sazerac. Mm-hmm. of course fame new orleans drink there's a uh, there's an absinthe wash of the glass before the drink is poured uh-huh. so it's 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 it was be like a bitter you wouldn't you wouldn't just fill up a a cocktail glass with it you would just have a dash of it uh for flavoring.
0: Right. Now, while it wasn't the central ingredient in a lot of cocktails, uh, there was, of course, a ton of just straight drinking of absinthe. Right, mixed right. Mixed with uh, water and sugar in the traditional preparation.
2: Yeah. Now, Wondrich, he says that by 1870, though, that's when you saw absinthe cocktails as a thing. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, the absinthe frappe, which was uh, absinthe shaken with a lot of ice and then strained into a glass. Now, Wondrich points out that according to a writer uh, by the name of uh, Clarence Louis Cullen, Another member of the sporting fraternity. He thought that, uh, that the, the absinthe frappe was just the right drink to have uh, first thing in the morning when you've got, quote, a head the size of a birdcage and a mouth that smelled like a motorman's glove. So <laughs> it would have been the good. perfect
0: hangover cure, I guess. Uh, yeah, that, I don't know. Ugh, the idea, I, I mean, all of, uh, uh, moralization on what people should and shouldn't drink aside. I, I think the idea of curing a hangover with more alcohol is just disgusting.
2: Uh, I, I would agree that that tends to be my, uh, read on the situation as well. Uh, the, the hair of the dog and all that. But, uh, but hey, for whatever reason people consume them, the absinthe frappe was popular. Uh, there were even songs about it.
0: Yeah, I actually had to look up the the Absinthe Frappe song that was referenced in Wondrich's book, and uh, I found the lyrics. L- oh, okay. lyrics by Glenn McDonough. I, I think this was from a Broadway play, and so the song is about the Absinthe Frappe. And uh, the lyrics go, It will free you first from the burning thirst that is born of a night of the bowl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like a sun twill rise through the inky skies that so heavily hang o'er your soul. At the first cool sip on your fevered lip, you determine to live through the day. Life's again worthwhile as with a dawning smile, you imbibe your absinthe frappé. Oh, nice. I think that's given a little too much credit to the, to the drink. I, I think so. That feels a little bit, a little bit like marketing. Yeah, but. Anyway, so, yeah, so you said absinthe was being adopted in the United States. Absinthe drinking was very popular, especially in France in the Mm -hmm. 19th century. It became very fashionable in Europe, especially France and Switzerland. Uh, Famous artists and intellectuals were notorious absinthe drinkers. For example, French poets like Baudelaire and Rimbaud, uh, Verlaine, in an 1860 pamphlet by Henri Ballesta called Absinthe et Absintheurs, uh, he calls these types of people, quote, the brilliant young men on the boulevard who were the absinthe drinkers. You know, these were the people who were out there making absinthe cool. And it was also reportedly popular with Oscar Wilde and continental artists like Van Gogh. Did I say I've always my whole life said Van Gogh and now I'm retraining to say Van Gogh.
2: Oh, is that the preferred pronunciation? Is it? Did? I
0: thought I, I thought I heard you say it that way one time. No, maybe I coughed a little bit. I <laughs> thought it was Van Gogh. I, I've i been saying Van Gogh. I, I grew up saying Van Gogh. Huh. We have to let you know, we just looked it up and it's and it's the Internet says it's Vincent Van Hall.
2: OK, well, <laughs> I think I might just stick to Van Gogh for simplicity's
0: sake. <laughs> OK, well, according to Amy Stewart in The Drunken Botanist, well, I thought this was really interesting. One explanation for the explosion of popularity of absinthe in Europe in the 19th century can actually be traced to a plant parasite. Hmm. Anytime there's a good parasite story, we got to do it on oh, stuff yeah. to blow Your Mind. So it is the Phylloxera pest or Dactylosphera vitifolia. And so none other than Thomas Jefferson, huh. that Thomas Jefferson, not some other Thomas Jefferson, had tried to cultivate both Native American and imported European grape varieties for making wine within the United States. And neither of them worked. The vineyards were just no good. And the the reason for this, Stuart says, is that the American varieties failed because they just don't make good wine. And the European varieties failed because, unlike the sturdy, resistant American grapevines, the delicate European grapevines were susceptible to attacks from a tiny insect, much like the aphid that was only found in the Americas. And this is phylloxera. Hmm. And unfortunately, before anybody knew about this, the Americans had made gifts of Native American grapevines and sent them to France. And much like a deadly spider hiding in a bag of bananas, the phylloxera pest was thusly imported to Europe, and they laid waste to a vast new landscape of maladapted grapes. And as a result, the French winemaking industry was severely damaged, and and production was limited throughout the 19th century. Well, so Frenchmen were deprived of their wine, right? And this this mattered because wine was seen by them as a as like a you know a drink of rectitude. Mm-hmm. It's a family drink. It's right. a moral drink. It's an upstanding and civilized drink. These other drinks like absinthe, eh maybe not so much. But anyway, Stewart claims that it's because of this severe shortage of wine due to the parasite infestation that absinthe became the drink of choice in cafes in France in the nineteenth century, feeding this surge in absinthe consumption that culminated in the late eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds. So the idea here is that this kind of forced the birth of absinthe culture because people had to
2: embrace it to a certain degree and then kind of stuck with it.
0: Right. But absinthe, like I said, was not viewed as this, uh, you know, family values kind of drink like wine was. Okay. And so there were plenty of people spreading a message of fear and suspicion about the green Titania. And I want to read one quote because I think it's amazing from a New York Times article about absinthe. They had an absinthe scare piece running in December 1880.
2: (laughs) New York Times. Yeah.
0: So here it goes. Quote. A French physician of eminence has recently declared that it is 10 times more pernicious than ordinary intemperance, meaning ordinary alcohol and that it very seldom happens that the habit, once fixed, can be unloosed. Mm. The same authority says that the increase of insanity (laughs) is largely due to absinthe. I didn't even know there was an increase in insanity around 1880. Uh, But continuing, it exercises a deadly fascination, the source of which scientists have vainly tried to discover, although they have no trouble ascertaining its terrible effects. Its immoderate use speedily acts on the entire nervous system in general, and the brain in particular, in which it induces organic changes with accompanying derangement of all the mental powers. The habitual drinker becomes at first dull, languid, is soon completely brutalized, and then goes <laughs> mad, he is at last wholly or partially paralysed, unless, as often happens, disordered liver and stomach brings a quicker end. Was this your experience at Kimball House? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> uh, though I, though to be fair, I, I am not a frequenter of absinthe cafes, and okay. I guess this is referring to chronic use. Th- these would be the absinthe fiends, which I would admit. Chronic use of absinthe, you know, drinking a lot of absinthe regularly probably does produce some very bad effects in people, but maybe it's not the absinthe. Uh Maybe it's not the absinthe in particular. Uh, we, we can look at the details of this. So fear of this condition called, quote, absinthism, <laughs> believed to be separate from and worse than regular alcoholism spread throughout these temperance minded circles in Europe and at the time There also seemed to be scientific evidence backing this up. For example, the work of the French physician Valentin Magnon. Uh, According to one 2009 review of Magnon's work, he found that this alcohol-soluble component that existed in wormwood did cause a lot of bad things, including lapses of consciousness, myoclonic jerks, and tonic-clonic convulsions in animals. So what was that component? Well, it was the natural plant essence found in Wormwood known as thujone. More on that compound in a bit. Uh, But in addition, looking at what caused this anti-absinthe attitude, there were the so-called absinthe murders. Now, there are multiple versions of this story reporting slightly different details. And the one I'm going to I'm going to use comes from an article in Distillations magazine, which is published by the Chemical Heritage Foundation. But uh, according to this version, in in August 1905, in the village of Communi, Switzerland, a French-born laborer named Jean L'Anfray was getting ready for a day of hard work at a local vineyard. And around daybreak, he had a couple of shots of absinthe before heading off to work. But Lanfrey wasn't done. He was just getting started. At lunch he had six glasses of wine. Then he had another glass of wine before heading home. On the way home he snagged a black coffee with brandy. Okay. Then when he got home he had another liter of wine. <laughs> then Lamfrey got into an argument with his with his wife and tragically he became enraged and he shot her with a rifle and then he shot his two daughters. Now it's a horrible crime, gets, very the, sad. The
2: tale gets significantly less funny right there at the end.
0: Right, but the lesson a lot of people apparently took away from it was that absinthe. <laughs> that must have messed him up. Obviously, if you're like me, you'll, you'll regard this as a kind of absurd conclusion. Like, it seems like there is at least one other major factor at play. Mm-hmm. Maybe alcohol. Um, but so these forces combined, like the research on the effects of absinthe done by people like Menon. And the these stories of these crimes, there were some other crimes, I think, that were attributed to absinthe. There was some kind of axe or hatchet murder, I think, that was referred to as an absinthe murder. And they combined into this whirlwind of anti-absinthe public sentiment that eventually led to the banning of absinthe in the United States and much of Europe, starting around 1915, and that lasted for nearly a century. So... What is all the fuss about? Like what, what's actually going on in absinthe and in the wormwood plant? And was it justifying all of this backlash? So we mentioned thujone, the compound. Mm-hmm. Thujone is an organic compound found in wormwood, but uh, also found in herbs like sage. So if you ever made sage stuffing there, you, you might be getting some thujone there. Uh, and the modern scientific consensus affirms that it can be toxic at large doses, primarily acting as a convulsant and also being associated with kidney failure. So it can cause convulsions. Uh, and this might be related to the fact that it was, you know, accused of being a cause of epilepsy at great enough concentrations. It could also lead to death. There are a couple isomers. There's alpha-thujone and beta-thujone, uh, with the alpha isomer being the more toxic of the two. And the primary method of action in the body is it attacks the nervous system by inhibiting the activation of GABA receptors. But is thujone really to blame for the so-called effects of absintheism and all of these mythological uh, accusations that absence could cause hallucinations and other stuff like that,
2: yeah, I think the mythology of it is worth keeping in mind at all times, kind of getting back to the whole marketing of the cocktail right and to what extent does i mean you 're already drinking, but then if there's this mystical quality involved, does it give you license to engage in you know, maybe a little more um uh, inappropriate behavior than normal. Right. Uh There's there's a quote that uh, I, I'd run across before that I always got a kick out of from Ernest Hemingway. He said, got tight last night on absinthe and did knife tricks. Great success shooting the knife into the piano. <laughs> the woodworms are so bad and eat hell out of all furniture. And you can always claim the woodworms did it. Oh, there you go. You can always claim the woodworms did it. You can always say, hey, it's the wormwood. It's the it's the absinthe. That's responsible.
0: I think "tight" is a euphemism that we should bring back for for <laughs> drunkenness. Yeah, I, I think so too. I,
2: I can I can just easily imagine the, the the violent tightness of the the
0: absent drinker's psyche. I remember "tight" also being the the drunkenness euphemism uh, used in some classic memo. I remember reading about Winston Churchill, where oh, like. Yeah? His, uh, his generals in World War Two, or something, were talking about how Winston was quite tight last night when he was giving <laughs> us our strategy.
2: <laughs> so myths aside, modern research shows that wormwood, you know, isn't really quite that bad. So yes, thujone can be a dangerous compound at high levels; it can cause seizure and death at high doses. But there's actually very little of it in absinthe and other liqueurs. Most of the tales of absinthe fueled madness. Probably come from the fact there's just a high alcohol content in absinthe as compared to other um, other other alcohols out there. It was traditionally bottled at 70 to 80 percent ABV. So that's twice as alcoholic as your common gin. So you the the scare piece in New York Times, I think it said that it was 10 times as dangerous as normal alcohol. Mm -hmm. Now, you can without quibbling on how you 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 factor the numbers here I think you could say it's at least twice as dangerous as normal alcohol <laughs> because it's twice as strong as most
0: alcohols that would have been uh, up there on the bar for your perusal uh, but then again the traditional preparation of of absinthe as served in the French cafes was to dilute it that's right and okay. so if you're diluting it I wouldn't even say it goes up uh, goes as far as the alcohol concentration and it would uh would lead you to believe because so the traditional pre- uh, production Mm -hmm. is you get this glass, it's got specially shaped glass back to these special glasses and making an event out of it. It's got this kind of bulge in the bottom and your absinthe goes down in the bulge at the bottom and then you put a slotted spoon on the top of the glass with a sugar cube on it and then they would dribble cold, ice cold water over the sugar cube and the spoon into the drink and when the water hit the drink it would do this very interesting thing where the clear green absinthe would suddenly froth up and become this uh the it's often described as a pale green milky type uh appearance and i i've seen it do that it does quite look like that like a cloud uh, emerging in the depths of a crystal ball yeah it's referred to as the louche and mm-hmm. it's very interesting because uh because you're like wow what's going on there chemically what's going on is that the uh the water is uh is breaking up the this the way that the oils from the plants are held in suspension in the liquor and when the water enters it it creates this emulsion essentially like you know you'd create an emulsion if you're making a vinaigrette in a salad dressing or something like that the oils and the water get emulsified and so it it clouds up and becomes rather beautiful it's kind of nice. It's this production. But it also does lead to the fact that you're diluting the drink with water, bringing it down probably closer to or even lower than the level of if you were drinking a straight liquor of some other kind.
2: Hmm. And and I believe in this space – it's been year since I had – straight up absinthe in this scenario Uh, it was at a place in new orleans called pravda i don't know if it's still around but it was a like a soviet (laughs) theme like uh, the word for truth yeah like like the and also like the the soviet uh, publication wow and uh they did the, the whole ceremony as i recall they also had a version that involved fire uh like a small amount of fire nothing flashy no blue blazers here but uh if, if, of course, fire is involved, you have the potential to burn off some of the alcohol as well, which would thus, uh, make its, uh, alcoholic punch a little less.
0: Yeah, but anyway, so you've had absinthe in, in this case. I've had absinthe. It seems to be clear that modern absinthe is, you know, n- not any more dangerous than any other alcoholic drink with all of the things that we should understand about the dangers right. of regular <laughs> alcoholic drinks. Um, but there, there, it doesn't ha- carry this special drug-like or poison-like property. So what was going on with all those experiments in the late 1800s showing absinthe to be a poisonous horror? Uh, well, recently people have gone back and reviewed this research, and generally the problem appears to be that they were testing the effects of not absinthe itself, but of ridiculously high concentrations of thujone in the form of a- Extracts and pure wormwood essence oil, essential oils. Uh, and so uh, the thing we know about doses is the dose makes the poison, right? right? Pretty much all of the food and drink we consume on a regular basis contains compounds that can be toxic in extremely large doses. So the question is, if you go out and get a bottle of absinthe, does it actually contain enough thujone to hurt you? Well, if you're getting it from a reputable distiller, the answer is no. Uh, so modern absinthe Really doesn't have enough thujone uh, to cause any of the effects in absence drinkers. Concentrations are small enough. The alcohol content is high enough that you would encounter toxicity due to alcohol way before you would ingest enough thujone to hurt you. But there's another question. What about the pre-ban absinthe? Because maybe what's going on hmm. is that absinthe is safer now and safety standards were much lower back then. Well, there's actually been research on this as well. So in 2008, there was a paper published by, uh, Dirk Lachenmeyer and et al. Uh, called a chemical composition of vintage pre-ban absinthe with special reference to thujone, finchone, pinocamphone, menthol, copper, and antimony concentration. So this is looking at old, old bottles of absinthe from before the absinthe ban to say, OK, did they have something really poisonous going on in them? It looked at 13 samples of vintage absinthe bottles uh, dating back to before 1915, and they were analyzed for toxicity, including naturally occurring herbal essences like thujone, uh, all the ones I mentioned before, and then menthol, higher alcohols, copper and antimony, And then they used a gas chromatography and mass spectrometry analysis to reveal that quote, the total thujone content of pre-band absinthe was found to range between about 0.5 and about 48.3 milligrams per liter of absinthe with an average concentration of about 25 milligrams per liter and a median concentration of 33 milligrams per liter. How much is that? Turns out, not that much. This shows that vintage absinthe from the pre-ban era is pretty much comparable to post-ban and modern commercial absinthe in terms of toxic content. Uh, And they concluded, quote, all things considered... Nothing besides ethanol was found in the absinthe that was able to explain the syndrome absintheism. And I think that's a that's a good note to end on the absinthe discussion with, because from my perspective, I think the reasonable conclusion is that absintheism was, in fact, alcoholism by yes. another name. Rebranded alcoholism, if you will. <laughs> And this is a good reminder, I guess, not to end on a down note, but uh but that we should always be careful when we're thinking about uh about alcoholic drinks, because, uh, as we pointed out, I mean, ethanol is in some sense a poison. Mm-hmm. It is in some sense a, a, a thing that is impairing our bodies. Now, generally responsible adults can learn to manage their ingestion of ethanol in a way that's not too harmful in the long term to themselves or others, but. It's it's something we have to be careful with. It's a it's a dragon in a cage.
2: Yeah. I mean if you if you really tease it apart, what is any cocktail but a balance of poisons <laughs> that you then drink? Uh and yeah, there there's 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 certainly a danger in consuming too much and there's you know, and certain people are gonna be more susceptible uh to problems than others. So certainly use use caution, uh employ your better judgment uh when uh choosing which cocktails and how many to consume, or if to consume at all. And again to come back to mocktails, I will say there are some fabulous mocktail uh recipes out there.
0: Oh yeah. So for our listeners who are underage or who are teetotalers, Robert, what what's a great mocktail for that you would recommend?
2: Okay, there is a, a recent New York Times article that came out. Um uh, because when they're not uh when they're not uh, uh shaming absinthe in previous times, they're putting out uh mocktail articles in our modern uh, times. Uh, but there's a mocktail article that came out recently, and they included a recipe for something called a Mumbai mule, which you can serve in the copper uh, uh, containers if you like. But it's a wonderful concoction that has, uh, I believe it was a, a coconut cream or coconut milk. Uh, a few different spices, uh, some citrus, and it has all the complexities. Cause I guess one of the things that you instantly think, all right, well, if you take the, 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 the liquor and the liqueurs out of a cocktail, what are you left with but some juices? Well, this drink, uh, I think is a nice answer to that because you get this, this balance of different, uh, of flavor notes, uh, in the ingredients without actually uh, having to engage alcohol. So, Look around, you know, there are some, definitely some lesser mocktails out there, but, uh, but there are some very finely crafted concoctions that don't involve alcohol, but do give you this appreciation for the process and, and, and also an appreciation for just the, the rich flavor profile. Though my one criticism is that they too, they do tend to go down a bit fast without <laughs> the alcohol in them.
0: Yeah. I don't know if I told you this. When I was a kid, I was a big fan of Virgin Bloody Marys. Oh yeah. But Bloody Mary with no alcohol in it. Uh though it wasn't even I wasn't even preparing what would be recognized by a bartender as a proper Bloody Mary mix. What I was drinking was like a can of V eight with a lot of Tabasco sauce and <laughs> celery salt in it.
2: Well it's kind of like the the Rob Roy's and the Shirley Temples. Yeah. Like I remember Going out to dinner and, and my dad got a cocktail and, and, and I got to get a Rob Roy. And, you know, that's just what it's 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 not the most finely balanced of a of a mocktail. It's just uh, like what <laughs> ginger ale and, uh, and and in my experience, like the bad maraschino cherries, not the real maraschino cherries, <laughs> um, maraschino cherries, by the way, a fabulous story just about those. And uh, I believe that shows up in
0: The Drunken Botanist. So another reason to, to pick up that book. Well, if we ever come back to doing more episodes on food and drink, maybe we should explore cherry science.
2: Oh yeah, there's so much. I mean, we've touched on cherry science a little bit in our, uh, our most recent dangerous foods episode. Oh yeah, don't grind up those pits. Yeah. Uh, cause that would be, that would make for a pretty nefarious cocktail, uh, right there. Okay. So hey, if you want to explore some of the links we talked about here, check out the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find podcasts, videos, blog posts, links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram.
0: Who knows what they'll be in the future? We'll probably be on those too. We will probably have to. And if you want to get in touch with us, as always, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.
3: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
2: Zumo Play.